most people had to book appointments to see him. Others would have to wait. They'd come in and announce, and they'd have to wait up to an hour or more to see him or to get into his office. Nearly everyone would at least have to check with the secretary to see if they were able to knock on his door to his office. But but the 10-year-old version of me waltz confidently through the secretary's office and through the doors straight into his office. My dad's office, that is. My dad was a pastor of a a fairly large church and a a superintendent of a Christian school. So I, I guess you could say he was fairly busy and he always had a lot of people who wanted to talk to him. If you, if you are in charge of a school and you're in charge of a large, and you're a pastor of a large church, you just have a lot of people who want to talk to you about a lot of things. So my dad's office wasn't immediately accessible. You'd have to enter through his, his secretary's office first and then, and then to, you'd get to his office. But the secretary's office was a bit more like a, a buffer zone so that she could kind of keep him so that he could actually get some work done because people were always wanting to see him. And this was quite necessary because he'd just find that he, he could literally get nothing done if he didn't have some kind of buffer zone. But I remember the distinct privilege of entering my dad's office whenever I pleased. Although I was just a kid, I had access to my dad without fear that he'd, he'd be upset with me or that he'd be bothered because I was an interruption. And why did I have this access? I mean, I wasn't incredibly important at that time in terms of I didn't bring important business to him. I was his child. We had an intimate relationship. His love for me, his delight in me, allowed me to have free access to him, more so than any other one, anybody else almost. You could say I entered his office confidently. Confident that I would be welcomed. Confident that he wouldn't be displeased to see me or that he wouldn't want to remove me. Confident that he would be pleased with my presence. And that confidence was so important to building a healthy relationship with my father. This is our final sermon in 1 John. And there's one thing that surprised me as I've prepared sermons, as I've discussed this with Ian about 1 John. It's John's emphasis throughout this entire book on the idea of confidence before God. Our confidence before God. I honestly just never thought that being confident before God was that important of an idea in Christianity. For John, assurance in Christ gives way to confidence before God. We see this clearly in verse 13 of our text. John gives us his purpose. He does it a few times, but this is, most commentators think this is the most clear purpose for the, for the book of John, uh, for, the, for the writing of this letter. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That phrase, so that you may know that we have eternal life, you can see it right behind me, is, is what we've kind of structured this whole series of talks around. It's repeated through, throughout the entire letter. John wants us to be confident that we will receive what God has promised. 
He wants us to be confident that we will receive what God has promised. So John then wants Christians, all of us, to be marked by confidence in our relationship with God. That's the simple point of this last passage. Fairly simple. He wants us to be, us to be marked by confidence before God. And our confidence in this passage is found in three areas. Confidence in God's testimony, confident in prayer, and confident in Christ. And those will be the three points that summarize this talk. So first, confident in God's testimony in verses 6 through 12. What is a testimony? Sounds kind of strange. Here, a testimony is just a statement, a fact or truth from a witness. And it's usually in what? In the context of a court case. So if you're a lawyer, right, and you want to try to present some convincing, compelling case, you want to make sure that all your witnesses and all their testimonies are true and that they all agree together, because if they don't agree, um, your case is going to fall apart. So this first section can seem a bit confusing, can't it? I mean, if you just read it, which we did, all this talk about Jesus coming by water and by blood, and then the water and the blood, they testify, and their testimony agrees with the Spirit. What in the world is going on? Well, remember, it might seem odd to us. It does seem odd to us, but I think it, it would have actually probably been quite understandable by the people who were reading it, but they're distant from us from about 2,000 years. So John here is making the point that ultimately our confidence comes from the fact that God has given his own testimony about Jesus. As if to say, God himself stands in the court as as the prime witness to the true humanity and deity and atonement of Jesus Christ. So John's already mentioned it. Ian talked about this in the introduction. John has already mentioned that we have received testimony from humans, right? Eyewitnesses of, of Jesus's life and death. In fact, in fact, John himself is like the eyewitness of eyewitnesses because he was in the inner ring of Jesus. And, and he himself is one of these human eyewitnesses. And yet John in verse nine here says, we accept man's testimony. That's kind of a given. But God's testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God. Okay, well, what, what is God's testimony then? If, if this is the prime, I mean, this is important, pretty important. It, it, as if we're putting Jesus on trial, which we really can't. But, and God is standing here as the prime witness, okay? So what's his testimony? He says, John says that Jesus came by water and blood. There's a lot of debate about what what that means, but I think the simplest explanation is that Jesus coming by water refers to the beginning of Jesus's ministry when he, he receives the baptism. He goes to John the Baptist out in the wilderness, and he receives this baptism from John, and then this is connected with his anointing from the Spirit. You might remember the episode. Right after John John baptizes Jesus, right? The Spirit of God descends from on high and you, uh, on Jesus' shoulder or something, and you hear this voice, the voice of God the Father, coming from the heaven and saying this, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
Okay, but what is this? Okay, so if that's him coming by water, what does it mean that he comes by blood as well? I think that, so that's the beginning of Jesus' ministry, kind of his, his announcing. That's, that's God affirming, putting his stamp of approval. This is my son. This is the, the Messiah of Israel. This is the Savior of the world. He, he's, the, he's the real deal. He's not a fake. The, him coming by blood is at the end of his ministry. I think it refers to Jesus' death on the cross, where he pays the penalty for sin and rescues sinners. This is precisely, remember in the, we're talking about a letter, and there's a background to this letter. The false believers, the, the, the false teachers here, in, in, in this community that had infiltrated the church and then abandoned the church. They were presumably arguing, among other things, that the Messiah would never die for sins. They flatly denied that Jesus would pay for sins by dying on a cross. And so it's as if John is saying that there are two silent witnesses at the beginning and at the end of Jesus' ministry. His baptism where the Father approves of the Son and his death where the Father accepts the sacrifice of his Son, okay? And then in verse 6, the Spirit adds his testimony to these silent witnesses. And in verse 7, the three witnesses agree, the Spirit, the, uh, the water, and the blood. So what John is doing here is combining the objective witness of the baptism of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus and the subjective witness of the Spirit bearing witness and comforting us in our hearts that we're actually truly children of God. He's combining them together. And of course, why, why the emphasis on the three and the three are in agreement? Well, in the Old Testament, and really in all ancient cultures, it's vital to have two to three witnesses testify in court and for those witnesses to agree. John is presenting God's case for you to trust and continue trusting in Jesus Christ. Okay, why does this matter? Simply because God's testimony is the most authoritative and sure testimony we can have, right? Human testimony can err. We could be bribed, we can misperceive situations, we can lie, we can, we can deceive, but of course God can't at all. And God's testimony is this, it's that Jesus is the true Son of God, who became a man while not giving up his, his godness at all, in order to die for sinners and thereby give them eternal life. That's his testimony. And, and John says, if you don't believe that testimony, it's akin to calling God a, a liar. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, when, when John wants to talk about disbelief, it, he, he fundamentally understands disbelief, disbelief at its core to be sin. It, it's not, disbelief is not just healthy skepticism. Yeah, I think we can often think that, right? You know, the, the fact that someone doesn't believe in something is just kind of a healthy form of skepticism. God tells us that when people reject Christ, it's not ultimately an intellectual problem, but a spiritual, a moral problem. Do you understand that? When people reject Jesus Christ, it's not finally an intellectual problem, not having enough evidence. 
But ultimately, ultimately, it's a moral problem, a rebellion problem. So what should we take away? Simply, you can be confident. You can be confident, Christian, in God's testimony. Although we rely on the testimony of the apostles, and we rely on eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and death, ultimately, it's God himself who has borne witness about the truth of Jesus Christ. So we can be confident in God's testimony, and secondly, we can be confident in prayer. We can have, simply, we can have confidence that God will hear us, and, and he'll answer us even when we, when we approach him. Verses 14 and 15. Read with me. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we, asks, what we asked of him. So that phrase, in approaching God, is literally just in the presence of God. We can have confidence in God's presence. You know, there's not gasps, gasps going on right now in the audience. No, no one seems incredibly shocked by that, and I, I kind of understand. I, I wasn't gasping it when I first read that either. But... But in most of the Old Testament, most of the Old Testament is concerned with guarding humans from God's presence. God's presence is so radiant and holy that Moses is scared he's going to be utterly obliterated in the presence of God. God banishes Adam and Eve from his presence after they sin. He banishes them out of the garden. In fact, God provides his presence for his people in the temple, but he also protects them from it. Only the high priest can enter into the holy of holies, where God is uniquely present, okay? So one person can do it. And he can only come in once a year, and he can only come in, he can only enter with an unblemished lamb that's going to pay for his, that's going to atone for his sins. So, So you're reading through the Old Testament, and one thing you get very quickly is God's presence is actually very dangerous for us we're sinners. But through Christ, this isn't the Old Testament, now we, we, we've experienced Christ and we have access to God, and not just access, but we have confidence in our access to God. And it's not only that he hears us, he hears us and he answers us. The text even says, we have what we have asked of him. That is bold. I mean, I can't imagine just saying that. Whatever you ask of him, if if you're asking according to his will, you're going to have it. But there's a major condition on that, isn't there, in verse 14. God hears us and answers us if we ask according to his will. Love what John Stott says about this passage. He says this, Prayer isn't about imposing our will upon God or bending his will to our will. Rather, it is in prayer that we actually align our will to God's, and our desires to God's desires. Stott even says, I I love how he, he ends this, every true prayer is a variation of the theme, your will be done. This is why reading scripture and prayer go hand in hand. 
because in the scripture we, we learn what God is like. We learn what God loves. And then as we read it and we learn what God loves and what he desires, we begin to love and desire what God loves and desires. And then we boldly approach God asking for the things that he desires. So we learn what he desires and then we go to him asking for him for the things that he desires. But this text wants you to know, John wants you to know, that God's fundamental posture towards you his, his posture towards you, Christian, is that of a father who wants to give you what you ask for when you're asking for something that's good for you and for others. That's his posture. Do you believe that? I mean, do, do we really believe that? You might be thinking, though, okay, what about our experience, Luke? I mean, I thought this. I mean, doesn't, doesn't our experience tell us that sometimes God doesn't give us what we ask for? Even when we're asking for things that we know are consistent with God's desires. I mean, doesn't experience tell us that? I mean, I've prayed for Christians to become friends. Or from that, I had that backwards. I have prayed for friends to become Christians. <laughs> and Christians to be friends, that's a good thing as well, I guess. Um, I'm praying for all you guys to be my friend. I need friends. Um, no, I have prayed for many friends to become Christians that are still hostile to the gospel. I've prayed for loved ones to recover from cancer who have not. I've prayed for sin struggles to cease uh, that have not ceased. Uh, some of you have prayed for children and have not received them. Some of you have prayed for reconciliation with a child and there's still distance and hostility with that child. And we know, I mean, we know that God desires for people, my friends, to trust him. We know God loves healing people of cancer. We know God loves for sin struggles to cease and for, and for children to be reconciled with their parents. So, so what is going on? According to John, th this is a true statement, okay? God gives us what we ask for when we ask according to his will. Okay, that's what we just said. That's a true statement. Seems awfully bold, but it's fairly clear. But that truth stands in intention with a few other truths that I just want to walk through for just a minute, okay? And I think we need to hold these intention, uh, intention together. First truth, God is all-controlling. We often say he, he's sovereign. And what that means is that he's holding a billion and more things together at once. Okay, God is holding a billion and, and even more than that, right? Things together at one time. Okay, he's holding the farmer's plea for rain so that he can continue farming together with the little girl's plea for a rainless, sunny birthday party. <laughs> He's holding together his disfavor for our suffering. He doesn't like our suffering. And the knowledge that suffering actually produces positive change in us. 
He's holding together the prayer for the infertile couple for children, and he's holding that together with the prayer of the orphan for a family. Okay, so he's holding a billion things together at one time that we don't know. We, We have limited knowledge, right? Two, God doesn't move on our time scale. Often we think God isn't answering our prayer, right? But in reality, he's using this to teach us patience and persistence in prayer. So just because he's not using our timescale doesn't mean he's not answering or giving what we need. Third, Satan's involvement in this world is, is real. I mean, I think we can forget this as evangelical Christians who believe that God is in control Of course, God is never handcuffed by Satan, okay? Satan cannot do anything, ultimately, that God cannot stop. Satan is a lion on a leash, 1 Peter, and Jesus is a lion on a throne, okay? But Satan, if we're going to do justice to Scripture, Satan is actually working in the world. He's attempting to thwart God's plan, plans. Satan instigates sin. He instigates suffering and corruption and pain. So God is going to ultimately destroy Satan and sin, but in the meantime, he's being patient because he knows the final destruction of Satan is going to be, is going to come with the final destruction of sin, okay, which means it's over. (laughs) He's being patient with sinners which also means he's being patient with allowing Satan in this world. And Satan is at work doing bad things. I'm not saying to you that every time a prayer is not answered, you should say, well, it's Satan is is just getting at me. But don't dismiss that he's actually in the world. I think it's very easy for us to talk about God, but talking about Satan feels like we're talking about Star Wars or something. You know what I'm saying? For some of you, that might feel very natural. But uh, I'm sorry, I looked at you, Jai. I didn't mean to. Um, but he's very real. Lastly, remember that God knows best. I mean, this is what it really comes down to, doesn't it? We pray, and we often think that we know what's best for us and for the world. Don't we? We pray, and we often think we know what's best for us and for the world. And and although we don't say it, we often think when, when we feel God isn't answering our prayers, we think, man, when is God going to get his act together and answer this thing? You need to always go back to this when you're tempted to think that. God knows best. Right? He's holding together a million things at once. The, the, certainly he delights in, in, the, in the couple who is infertile, who, who, who wants to have a child, and, and yet and yet God is working in a million ways. I'll just give you a personal example. I was talking to my, I used that example because I was talking to my friends recently who um, alongside of us were, were dealing with this issue of infertility. And, and um, they're our very close friends and they uh, ended up adopting uh, a child and being very committed and it's a beautiful picture of adoption. And, and they said to me recently, uh, they wouldn't have said this five or six years ago, they said, our infertility has been God's greatest gift in our lives. That's amazing. 
But they weren't saying that in the midst of, God, give us a child, right? So we can, we can pray with confidence. God is going to give us what we ask for. But, but don't, don't place your expectations of what God should give you on him. But the next section, confidence, oh, sorry. Oh, there you go. I was, I was ahead of myself. We should be confident that our prayers will also produce enduring faith and resurrection life. Let's read verses 16 and 17 together. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Well, here we go again. We started off with kind of a weird section, and now this is definitely a strange passage. These two verses are, prob- are, are probably the most, they could be the most difficult verses in the whole New Testament to understand what's going on here. So let's try to figure it out. What stands out to us is this. A sin that does not lead to death and a sin that does lead to death. People have read that and think, oh my, have I committed some unpardonable sin that is unforgivable? And Paul says, don't even pray for that person. See, it appears at least he says that. And this is actually how many Christians throughout the history of the church have have interpreted this passage. By looking for some specific sin that kind of irreversibly consigns you to spiritual death. You may even be aware of the distinction in Roman Catholic theology. They have this major distinction between mortal sins and venial sins. And mortal sins, such as idolatry and adultery or murder, put you, can put you out of the reach of God's grace, irreversibly consigned to death. And in fact, the whole, the whole sense, uh, the whole idea of seven deadly sins comes from this idea. That there are certain specific sins that if you commit them, boy, you be- just walk out of here because there's no hope. Okay, I don't think that's what's going on. <laughs> just so, just no, one, no one walk out right now, please. I feel, very, I feel very bad. I think John is not so much distinguishing between two different kinds of sin. Okay, this is important. John is not so much distinguishing between two different kinds of sin so much, so much as two different kinds of people who sin, okay? Notice in verse 17, he says, all wrongdoing is sin. In the argument, that's John saying, essentially, all sin is serious, okay? I know I said that some sin leads to death, some doesn't, but I'm telling you, all sin is serious and deadly. But he continues in verse 17, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Okay, who is the person whose sin does not lead to death? Verse 16 says, verse 16, it is a brother or sister who commits a sin that does not lead to death. The language of brother and sister is consistently used for someone who trusts in Christ. A child of God, okay? So when a child of God sins, it is serious, John says. Okay, if you're a child of God, you're a Christian, true Christian, 
It's serious when you sin, but it has been paid for through Christ's atonement. And since that sin has been paid for through Christ's atonement, that sin does not lead to their spiritual death. Okay? Whereas the person whose sin does lead to death is the one who has rejected Jesus and his atonement. In rejecting the atonement, right, they have rejected the very thing that would stand in the way and cover their sins. And for such a person who has rejected Jesus and his atonement, their sin does indeed lead to death, right? Of course, this interpretation fits with the background. Because the false teachers, remember, that's, that's what's in the background of this letter. The, the false teachers, they have, what have they denied? They have denied Jesus' atonement. They've denied the very thing that stands in the way between them and spiritual death. So when they sin, it does lead to their spiritual death. Okay, so, so what then? What, what is John's point here? Because his, his point is actually about prayer. John's focus here is on praying for for the forgiveness and restoration of those in the church, brothers and sisters, who who commit sins that don't lead to death, who commit sin. John wants us to know, as Christians, we can be confident that our continued struggle with sin won't result in our spiritual death. Why? Why? Why won't this happen? Because God will answer our prayers by producing enduring faith and repentance so that we will attain future resurrection life. So his point here then is that for the true child of God, your sin will not cause you to miss out on what God has promised. For the true child of God, your sin won't cause you to to miss out on what God has promised, namely eternal life. You, and why will you not miss out on it? Because God will cause your faith to endure. And how will he cause your faith to endure? Through the prayers of Christians who pray for you. Okay, so ap- application from this. First, be confident. Be confident that your sin doesn't actually reign in your life. Christ does. Be confident that sin will not ultimately reign in your life. Christ will. That's a promise from God. But the second one is pray for your brothers and sisters. Confident that it is the means of their endurance in the faith. Do we pray for one another like this? Do we pray for one another like their spiritual destiny depends on it? It doesn't depend on you. But God, in some mysterious way, uses the prayers of fellow Christians to produce enduring faith, which results in eternal life. Friends, I mean, there are times to confront sin. We've talked, Paul talks about that in Galatians. We've talked about that in, in humility and in gentleness. But confronting sin can be quite tricky. I think, do we all agree on that? I think so. It can be quite tricky. It needs to be handled well. We often address the sin of others with a beam in our own eyes, don't we? But let me tell you what's not tricky. 
When we see a sinful habit or a sinful pattern in the life of our fellow Christian, in the life of our fellow member, we can just begin praying for that person right away, can't we? That's what John's calling us to do. And that's not so tricky. It doesn't require, have I, have I really thought, am I going in a humble spirit? I'm pretty sure that you can just start praying for that person right away. It's not as hard. When is the last time you just prayed for the spiritual conviction and the spiritual maturity of another member of this church, another Christian friend? Is it really the case that we never see each other's sin? Probably not. Let's be a church who carries one another's burdens by praying for one another that our faith would endure to the end. One side note here that that I don't want to spend a lot of time on, but as you read along in verse 16, you may be wondering whether John is telling us not to pray for someone then who is rejecting Christ. That would seem to run in tension with the whole kind of evangelistic impulse of the New Testament, you know? Certainly, John, the New Testament writers pray for people who are not Christians all the time. Uh, I don't want to spend time on this, and, and if you want to talk about it further, we could talk about it afterwards. But I, I th- the translation is, so this is, of course, written in, in Greek, and it's then translated to English. This specific section, uh, verse, let's see, 16, is actually very tough to understand how it goes in. And, and this is how I would interpret uh, the verse, and I think there's, there's several uh, scholars who, who, who would do the same thing. And, it, and it's this, there is a sin that leads to death. I'm not speaking about that sin, so that you may pray with confidence. Okay, and if that is the, the translation that's correct, John is simply saying this, okay? I'm addressing the prayer for believers who are caught up in sin. I'm addressing that issue. I'm not addressing your prayer about unbelievers. I'm addressing prayer about believers in, 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 who are caught up in sin. And so I think you, you can have confidence that God will answer that prayer, that God will bring them to eternal life, that will, God will conti- cause them to endure to eternal life. That's simply what I think is going on there. So I, I didn't want any of you walking out there today thinking, wow, John told us not to pray for non-Christians today. That, that was very strange. So I thought I'd just mention that. Okay, lastly, be confident in God's testimony, be confident in prayer, and we can be confident, lastly, in Christ. This is the conclusion to the letter, and John is literally flinging everything he has at us so that we'll have assurance. Notice verses 18, 19, and 20. They begin with the same three words. We know that. We know that. We know that. Notice our assurance is not the product of how we feel. He doesn't say we feel that. We feel that. We feel that. It's the product of what we know. John is trying to produce in us confidence in Christ. And he gives us three reasons for that in these last few verses. Reason number one, Christ protects us. Verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God, that's referring to Jesus, keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. For the child of God to keep God's commands, 
God must keep, Jesus must keep the child. For the child of God to keep God's commands, Jesus must keep the child. Confident Christianity arises when, when Satan, or, or arises when you realize that Satan can't harm you. Verse 19, in fact, tells us that the whole world is under the control of Satan. Jesus prays to the Father in John 17, I don't ask that you take my disciples out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Christ is our protector. Do you get what that means for us? It means that suffering can't harm you because it cannot, suffering can't harm you because it can't separate you from the Father. Your own sin can't harm you because your own sin won't ultimately rule over you. Christ will. Even death won't harm you because Jesus has already experienced your death for you and he's risen on the other side of death and that's the promise that you will too rise again. He's your protector. Reason number two, you can be confident in Christ because Christ shows us the Father. Verse 20, we know also that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding so that we know him who is true. That's the Father. It is Christ who shows us the Father. And he, he helps us understand the Father. It, John, Jesus will say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I mean, how many times I've heard people say, okay, Luke, there, there are so many different versions of the, a higher power. I believe in some higher power, but there are so many different versions of this invisible, transcendent God. How in the world can you know, Luke, or Christians, that you have the right version of this invisible, transcendent God? That sounds like an overly confident claim. I'd say this, Jesus, Jesus shows us the Father. How do we know this invisible, transcendent God? Jesus, real flesh and blood, came here to earth, humbled himself, and he is a reflection. He shows us who the Father is. So we can say with confidence, we do worship the true God because we, we know that he is the Father of Jesus Christ. Reason number three we can be confident in Christ. Christ possesses us, and he brings us to the Father. The last part of verse 20, and we are in him who is true. That's the Father. How? By being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. It's so fitting that John ends this way, I think. The most important point that John is making to us in this book is that God's children share in his life and fellowship. God's children share in the life and fellowship of the Father. And the way we share in the life and fellowship of the Father is that Christ has made us his possession. Paul would say we're united to Christ and he brings us to the Father. Jesus brings us to God. We always go to God, the Father, through Jesus. We don't, we don't just say in Jesus' name, amen, out of ritual. Jesus is our access to the Father. Jesus redeemed us so that we don't have to 
face the Father's judgment. Jesus reconciled us so that we enjoy the fellowship of the Father. Jesus represents us to the Father so we have access to him. Jesus purifies us for the Father. Jesus shares the inheritance of the Father with us. Jesus protects us so that we'll never be separated from the Father. Jesus shares the life of the Father with us. Jesus, he does it all. He brings us in every way to the Father. We are Christ's possession, and therefore, we are the Father's possession. We're his children. So how can you not be confident? (laughs) This isn't self-confidence, it's Christ's confidence. But what should that look like? I think that should look, a settled confidence in Christ will look like people who have a sturdy anchor that that just, the, the, the boat that has a sturdy anchor that doesn't let the ship drift or rock or be turned over or be abandoned when the storm comes. So storm is the generic category, but that is what we refer to things like suffering, doubt, unbelief, our failures, right? Our sin. Maybe, maybe God feels silent for a season. Maybe we're just frustrated, unfulfilled hopes. What anchors us when life is filled with that? Life will be filled with those things. And those things are the kinds of things that just blow you off course or blow you away. Want you to ab- make you want to abandon the church or, or abandon the gospel or abandon the Bible. Abandon Jesus, abandon the Father. John wants us to have, he wants us to be a community of anchored, sturdy Christians because we have a settled confidence in Christ. When those things blow at us at at every season of life, there's just this rock-bottom confidence that Christ will keep us. He won't abandon us. We'll be with the Father. We'll have his fellowship. We'll have joy. He wants us to be a community that looks like that. Confidence in Christ. Okay, so I'm, I'm no longer a, um, I'm no longer a child running confidently into my dad's office. I'm now a father. Uh, and I don't have a nice big office like my dad did. I, of, I often work from home. Sitting at the ca- kitchen table, working away with the door closed so I can get some work done. It's closed until the moment when Jane or, the, some, or Jack finds a way to jimmy it open and it, it breaks open. And, and when Jane sees me, she doesn't quite have the awareness yet to think, oh, you know, Dad, you look really busy at work and you know, I'll just leave you alone for now and uh, you, just, you just crack on with it. No, she doesn't have quite that awareness yet. Um, what she does is she just runs almost every time into my lap with every bit of confidence that she'll be welcomed. 
she knows even when I'm busy, there's nothing in the world that could keep me from welcoming and delighting in her embrace. She hasn't figured it all out yet, right? But she knows that. That's the confidence Christ has won for us. That's the confidence John wants us to have in approaching God. We're not afraid of him. John's message to you, Christian, is to embrace your status as a child of God. And then, knowing you're a child of God, embrace him like a three-year-old embraces her father, knowing she'll be welcome there.